This is Gestoras. Today's episode is in English. El episodio de hoy de Gestoras es en inglés. Pueden leer una transcripción en español en nuestro sitio web o pueden ver el episodio en YouTube con subtítulos en español. Gestoras Podcasts brings you conversations with cultural managers from the North and the South. We celebrate the work of Latina cultural managers sharing their stories of success, challenges, and lessons learned. Our guest today is Dr. Leah Uribe, an educator and bassoonist who serves as the Associate Dean and Music Professor at the University of Arkansas. She is the director and creator of the Innovative Reflections Music Series, a project at the intersection of creative justice and artistic excellence, providing opportunities for reflection, learning, growth, change, and teaching. A native of Colombia, Dr. Uribe is also a fellow of Sphinx Lead, a prestigious two-year leadership program empowering the next generation of executive leaders in the arts. Today, I am in the studio with Anoush Titanian, our English language episode producer. Anoush, when we were putting together this episode, you mentioned that it had really resonated with you. So what were your thoughts about Leah's, uh, Leah's interview? So Leah's recording, actually, her episode resonated with me so much on a personal level because I had a similar story, which was so interesting. I was listening to the episode and remembering the things which happened to me 10 years ago. So I started uh, my kind of musical career when I was 16, which is too, too late to go to music school. And when I went to the music school, I wanted to play the drum set because I was very much into rock and metal music. And when I went to the reception, they assumed I want to register my younger sibling, my younger brother, because all, uh, all, all of the students in the class were six, seven-year-old boys, and there was just me. <laughs> It seems kind of an innocent thing. Like they assuming that it's for your sibling, but it's not. It's such a discrimination. It's discrimination. It's also so discouraging, right? We spend so much time talking about the importance of the arts and getting people to um, participate in the arts and love the arts. But then when it comes to actually being able to participate, there's all these barriers. In Leah's case, the being too late for for some instruments was actually perfect for the instrument that she ended up loving so much, right? The, the, the bassoon. Also her <laughs> perspective when she said, I knew I was going to be the only girl playing the yeah. bassoon. And that's why I decided that that's it. I want to do that. Yeah. So that was the motivator, right? Instead of saying, oh, well then, no. So it's like, okay. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that was Great. All right, but let's not give too much away. Um, and uh, let's let our listeners hear to what we heard um, Leah talk about. Yeah, enjoy. Hello, Dr. Leo. It's such a pleasure to have you here today with us. Hi, Jimena. Likewise, I am thrilled to be in this space and I appreciate very much the invitation. 
it's it's very very exciting to have you here and and as we were saying in our in our earlier conversation i don't understand how you have been able to accomplish so much um and not be 150 years old uh, because you're an incredibly accomplished musician uh an academic and administrator and manager and it's just i don't know how you do it um but i'm very grateful that you've made the time to be here with us today so thank you very much for that it's very generous thank you for the invitation so let, let's start talking. Let's start talking about uh, one of your careers, which is uh, as a musician. Um, what led you to music? What, how did you end up being a musician? I am from Colombia, and uh, I grew up in a very, very musical family. I'm actually from Cali, which is la capital de la salsa. So um, my mom used to say that I learned how to dance before I learned how to walk. I grew up with music everywhere, music when she was cooking in the kitchen, music in public transportation, uh, all the songs, everything. And um, a couple of my uncles um, played the guitar. My aunt played the piano. Every family gathering was full of music. Um, but at some point, um, you know, I asked for a guitar. I learned how to play guitar with my friends. Back in the day, teenagers will sit around the fire and sing together and entertain themselves. It was part of my uh, formation as a musician. Um, I wanted to play the piano, but my parents could not afford to buy me a piano, so that didn't come true. Uh, but at some point when I was around 13 years old, uh, my friend and I saw uh, um, a thing in the newspaper saying that the conservatory in town was uh, had openings for kids to apply to study music. So we went there uh, asking for information. Um, it was a conservatory, still is a conservatory, so it was a process of um, qualifying and presenting tests, and both of us uh, were accepted. And um, we started without knowing what we were embarking in, you know, this career as musicians. But wait, wait, you, you, you were both young kids, and you saw this, and you... And you just went and did, oh my we goodness. And then we told our parents, like, we were accepted, and they're like, what, what is that? So they didn't know, fortunately, what we were signing for. Um, and then, um, you know, we didn't know either. So we started this very serious training. After school, we would go directly to the conservatory to take theory classes and history classes, music, music theory, music history. Um, I was asked to, you know, what instrument I wanted to play. I said the piano, of course. Um, and they said, no, you're, you're too old. You're 13 years old. If you want to be a you know, conservatory trained pianist, you had to start when you were four. Uh, so they asked me what else. Well, I played the guitar. I sh showed up to my first guitar lesson, and the professor uh, asked me, "What do I do? You want to do with the guitar?" And like, I want to play bossa novas. And he said, "Well, <laughs> this is not the right place for you." <laughs> so I kind of, you know, tried for a couple lessons to do the classical guitar, and I didn't like it. So I didn't know anything about classical music. So my theory, music theory professor, said, "Well, let me show you some instruments." And uh, he showed me the bassoon, showed me the uh, French horn and the cello. I had never seen those instruments live. My best friend, the one that started this adventure with me, chose the cello before I did. So I couldn't do the same thing. <laughs> and the bassoon professor said, if you choose the bassoon, you will be the first girl in this conservatory playing the bassoon. And that was what I needed to hear. I didn't know what it sounded like. I didn't know anything about it. But um, to be that first girl, you know, playing the bassoon, yes caught my attention. And in that decision at age 13, 14, has, you know, decided everything else I have done in life. So from the beginning, you were, you were independent and decided and you were seeking out 
new things and challenges from the beginning. That's something that drives you. I think so, yes. Being different and, and capitalizing, I guess, in, in that difference and opening spaces. I didn't know. I couldn't. I didn't have the language or the experience to explain that at that point, but that was some of my fire. Back in right. The and what, what kind of what kind of spaces did playing the bassoon uh, open up for you as a young as a young woman? Well, first it was, uh, you know, fighting for that right and that uh, idea and that crazy decision. Uh, that was something that was unexpected um, in all my environments. You know, my parents um, at first were kind of interested in me learning music. But then when it was time to decide what my career was going to be, uh, it was very, um, you know, it was not in, in their plans for me to become a musician. And, you know, I understand that being a musician in our countries um, was kind of a uncertain way of making a living. And they were really concerned about that. Um, but also, um, you know, I was a really good student in high school and my, my teachers in high school wanted me to find that, um, you know, career in math, in engineering or something like that. Mm -hmm. So deciding to be a musician. So I had to really fight for that. And that was an interesting, um, you know, exercise of becoming stronger and really finding that passion that ignited that decision to really delve into that uh, path and find my way. And eventually prove to whoever needed to be proved <laughs> wrong that it was okay to choose that career and to follow that path and that passion. So the passion for music was there and you were fighting for that passion for music. Did you ever contemplate doing something else or was it like yes. this? Yes, I did uh, because I knew that I had many other passions in life. So, um, you know, at some point I um, I even thought about maybe I can correlate a career in engineer with music uh, at some point once I was already in music working on a master's um, in bassoon performance I thought maybe I could open a space in ethnomusicology and I kind of started delving into that but uh, I ended up just following my trajectory as a performer and getting my degrees in bassoon performance and eventually um, finding other spaces in which I could also find myself but uh, not not until I was able to just delve into that world of uh, bassoon performance and prove myself, if you will. Right. And at what point did you make uh, the switch then to come to the United States to continue? Was it to continue your studies? Yes, it was. I graduated from my bachelor's degree from the Conservatorio, um, Universidad Nacional de Colombia. And at that point, um, I kind of real I had this realization. I was in my early 20s that if I stayed in Bogota or in Colombia, I was going to be doing the same thing for the next forever years in my life. I was teaching at a university. I was playing with some of the main orchestras. Um, I had some other you know, projects going on, but not really much space to continue growing. So um, one of my mentors, Cecilia Casas, a very accomplished musician that uh, I work with in a festival, contemporary music festival, um, she, she was a really uh, special person opening windows for me of what being a musician was in the world. And um, she um, introduced me to the BAM Center for the Arts and made me aware of, of some uh, scholarship opportunities. She wrote me a recommendation letter. So I ended up in BAM for one year. It was my first time out of the country for an extended period of time. 
um, surrounded by amazing artists from all over the world. And that was really eye-opening to see, you know, what could happen, you know, what was happening in other spaces, uh, opportunities for collaboration. So after I came back from Banff, uh, I started exploring opportunities to uh, work on a master's degree. Uh, in Colombia at the time, there were not uh, opportunities for master's or any other higher degrees in music. My degree was the highest possible. So I came to the States in 1999 to work on a master's in Bassoon. Was your thinking that when you came to the United States to do your master's degree that your your work and your life was always going to be in music and as a musician? That was what you were going to be doing? That's what I thought. And um, I mean, really, my plan was to be here for only two years and then go back. I had plans to go to Europe. Uh, usually in Colombia, all the musicians go to Germany. That was the only kind of guidance I kind of perceived. I have to say too proudly that I am a first generation high school graduate. So um, that I was an only child. So my parents really couldn't lead me into any direction because they didn't have that experience. But they knew that education was the, the way to whatever, you know, the goal was. So I got some ideas from other people. But once I got here, um, I, I knew that I wanted to continue finding my way. Uh, in, in music and that I needed more education or more experience, more other things. So, of course, those two years now are 20, 25. <laughs> well, you mentioned earlier that staying in Colombia would have meant uh, doing the same, playing the same role and doing the same thing for the rest of your life. Um, but that has not been the case with your career in the United States, where you've played many different roles and done many, many different things. How has it been like for you being a Latina in primarily um, based on your resume, not Latino spaces? How have you navigated that? And how has your identity uh, as a Colombian, as a Latina woman informed, if it has, uh, your professional life and the way you approach your career? That is a very interesting question. It is it's a, it's a good point of reflection because the world of classical music is complicated. Uh, classical music is very much dominated by one identity, the white European dead man and the type of repertoire that we're supposed to, to, to play and the type of identity that we have to embrace and how we assimilate and how we prove ourselves in those spaces. So I didn't know any better and I did what I was supposed to do, right? I proved myself in those spaces. I uh, I was in a recording session some years ago in which uh, the recording engineer said, well, you're, you're, you're a good bassoonist. You play like a man. Um, you know, he wanted to, wow. to, to, to be nice to me, to say I had a big sound. I had passion and power and, and, um, and that, you know, I, at the time, yeah, I didn't have the language to <laughs> to say anything. And I'm like, that's uh, interesting, right? Um, but it wasn't until my uh, I was finishing my degree at KU, uh, my doctoral degree, my DMA, uh, in 2013. So around 2011. By the way, I, I took some time in between because life happened to me in many ways. So I took time between my bachelor's and my master's and then my master's and, um, and my doctorate. Um, but, um, I talked to my bassoon professor and, um, we were trying to decide what was my dissertation, uh, subject. And I thought, well, I'm from Colombia. I want to talk about Colombian composers that have written for bassoon. He was supportive. And then I realized there's, you know, not very many of them are there. There, there are not very many pieces for bassoon written by Colombian composers. So that started kind of this interesting questioning about who I am, uh, who am I? What is my identity? Who am I representing? And that was kind of this quest that uh, at the time uh, was academic 
an academic endeavor and it became a very fundamental question in my life of what how my identity as a classical bassoonist has or has not been informed by uh, being from Colombia. So it's been a, an interesting quest and a lot of interesting <laughs> Um, you know, processes inside, some easy, so some not so easy. After I finished, I, I, I was successful. I wrote my dissertation and my lecture recital on Colombian. Uh, but as soon as I had to commission two brand new pieces, then I um, got a position at the University of Arkansas as bassoon professor in 2013, right after graduation from my uh, DMA. And then I entered this uh, interesting, um, you know, time of uh, uh, being a professor on a tenure track position. And then uh, I got tenure, and that was freeing and liberating. A uh, uh, professor with tenure has, um, I, I found the ability to speak my mind in a more open way. And also I had been, you know, thinking and researching and finding more uh, myself in my in my art. So um, today, you know, and after I've been tenured since 2019, and um, I'm a dif very different bassoonist today. Now I choose what I want to play. Now I work directly with composers. I find the opportunities to mm. uh, find myself and bring other identities to, to my spaces. Uh, I have made some interesting decisions, like not, not to play in orchestras anymore, because I don't want people to tell me uh, what to do. One, two, I don't want to contribute uh, to that. To me, a very oppressive way of uh, embracing classical music when there are so many voices and then continue, you know, being the gatekeeper for the voices that are not at the canon, at the center of the practice. Uh, so, you know, I, I've been freeing myself. It hasn't been an easy process, but it's, it's been beautiful and it's been beautiful because it has, it has allowed me to really expand and, and connect with myself in ways I didn't know it was possible back when I started, you know, to, or, or, or for the longest time in this career. As a, as a tenure was in 2019, right before the pandemic. Then, yeah. mm -hmm. um, and and I saw that in your in your um, bios that are online, and also in your recordings online, that you've really made good on the promise of your PhD uh, thesis that you've um, that you intentionally play so much of contemporary Latin American repertoire and contemporary composers, and so many pieces that I didn't know before. I've learned now thanks to you to to listening to those recordings. This is Gestoras, real women, real cases, real arts management. So um, since the pandemic, or maybe before that, you've also been involved in uh, projects that have to do with the professional development of artists and that also have to do with um, the community hub and exchange in, in Arkansas as well. And these are different roles, right, from, from just from just from being a professional musician. These are other things that you're doing. You've been in the Global Leadership Institute. What is it that um, made you expand your horizons or, or change uh, that focus on music to include these other these other activities? Several things have, you know, informed these decisions of expanding my kind of uh, my world in music. And that's completely against what we are taught in school and what uh, our, you know, environment tells us, you know, being a, uh, a classical performer asks you to just delve into that world of performance and with your instrument, and that's all it is. And I didn't feel complete. I, um, I was lacking community, even though I had my concerts and my audiences. I wanted to be involved in my environment. I wanted to know what was going on and how to affect these spaces 
that I thought and I uh, and I realized we were not affecting intentionally. Um, and it's not just us at the University of Arkansas, it's just academic life. We live in a very much silo, you know, environment in which we do our research and that's all that matters uh, because because it is important to to be to be in those spaces, but I, I was Someone lacking has to do it personally, and uh, yeah, and uh, uh, as a, as an individual, as a human being, that connection with community. So I started looking for opportunities. So um, I was made aware of a Mid America Arts Alliance running this program called Artists Inc. So I wanted to uh, understand better what they were doing. So I became a um, part of um, one of their cohorts. Uh, of professional development, and after I was a student of Artists Inc., I was asked to join as a facilitator. So I started also connecting with other artists, and then I realized that it was important to know what uh, you know local artists in the visual arts and film and dance and other spaces were doing. So I started paying more attention and connecting more through my own facilitating with them. Uh, so that opened many opportunities. Um, just uh, creating community. There was a, and I, I don't want to become political, but I remember that moment in 2017 <laughs> uh, in which I was overwhelmed thinking I am in this country. I carry all of these identities with me that are not, don't have a chance. Um, so I was kind of devastated and remember listening to a, to NPR on a Sunday morning in which they were talking about that, the federal uh, impact in uh, in our lives, but also in the power of community and local communities. And it was very encouraging to hear that change is more, um, it, it's easier to, to achieve in community as opposed to other levels. Mm. Um, and I started thinking about the city of Fayetteville where I am and the uh, mayor we have, still have, it's, he's been there for a long time, and the um, openness to new ideas, the openness to think about the environment and the arts as um, you know possible paths to progress all together, and that was really important. And I, I really committed myself at that moment to not only get out of the you know cloud that I was in because of the situation, but also to find uh, find more intentionally opportunities to work with community in Artists Inc. and Mid America Arts Alliance, and then. Uh, other opportunities are, um, came my way. Uh, the chancellor of the university asked me to be part of the um, board of directors for the Walter Art Center, which is an important um, presenting arts organization here. And then Cash uh, also asked me to be part of the board. So, you know, kind of expanding the opportunities and, and looking um, intentionally for uh, those venues to connect with community became an important pro priority. And departed, I departed from that only being uh, a bassoonist, but it made me much happier and much more fulfilled just to be around other artists and other people and, and understanding more what it is to be an artist all around it. Yeah, so it seems like there was a reckoning to think about your role and what, what you were about and what you were doing and to move not just to be in that narrow world of the conservatory, but to really make be part of making change and... Yes, and I also realized that when these conversations became more evident and and brutally evident in 2020 with the pandemic and the killing of George Floyd, and we were started kind of uh, thinking about um, identity and representation and diversity, um, I realized at that point that 
yes, bas- bassoon and music has been my passion, had been my passion for a long time, but my platform was reduced. Uh, but if I was able to expand that and to find other ways to reach out to more people, um, my voice uh, in, in any way, playing bassoon or my voice speaking or whatever that was, uh, was going to be more effective. I needed to find a bigger, wider platform, so I need to prepare myself to do that. And that was re- a really important you know, switch in my identity as a professional and also in my, uh, you know, opening those spaces to to, to be yeah. more effective. And, and I want to ask you about that, about you, that's about that important switch that you that you made, because um, what is it? What is it that you've learned about leadership and about uh, being an arts manager, an arts leader that you didn't know before? What have been some important things that you learned and what kinds of skills have you needed to use or what did you bring um, what, that already was inside you that uh, made you able to um, be in those roles and be in that position? I uh you know, I feel like I have been a leader in my life in many ways and, and you know, a leader in many spaces, right? We are leaders in our families. I was a single mom for the longest time, taking care of my two kids, um, opening those spaces for them, which actually drove a lot my career as well. You know, the decision to go back to work on a doctorate um, was not necessarily a decision uh, of expanding my artistic um, uh, life. It was I needed to be able to get a job that uh, offered what I needed to support my kids. So that's why I went back to grad school to do that. Um, so that was a decision based on leadership <laughs> for my family and the betterment of my family. Um, but in academia uh, and at the university, um, I was asked to join uh, some leadership positions and I was really excited to be there, but I was really um, cognizant, I guess, that I had a big responsibility to be myself in those positions. Um, academia is not an easy space either. The hierarchies and the demands and the um, the canons as well of who, who is supposed to be there and who is not. Um, so, But I was very, very clear that I brought many identities with me and that I had a huge responsibility to be true to myself. Um, I, in my preparation for tenure, I remember uh, working with a friend that um, was helping me uh, with my writing of my, um, you know, all my the things that you have to write when you go for tenure for your uh, um, in your portfolio. And I had written in my draft as a minority, blah 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 blah. And my friend like, don't say minority. You cannot say that. You cannot play that card. And I remember being very upset. And then thinking, why, why am I upset? But also, why am I not supposed to say that I'm a minority? And that created a lot of conflict <laughs> and a lot of thinking. And, and a lot of, uh, I became much more assertive. Like, I cannot go there and pretend I am somebody else. No, I am a minority. I am, I am actually many minorities. And it represents so many constituencies and so many identities and so many people. And um, I don't want to get compassion because of that, but I want to be recognized because of that, because my story is very different than other people. I have my paths in, in, uh, through those identities and through my experiences. Um, those stories are important to, to bring to the forefront and, and to be validated. So in these positions of leadership and in any position, from performing, teaching, um, you know, leading, whatever that is, a meeting or a department of music, I need to be true to that because my story is valid. And by by virtue of presenting my stories, I am validating other people as well. Um, I have to say that 
I found the language for that last year. I was in Sphinx uh, in the conference uh, uh, at the end, and the keynote speaker said, and we artists, our job, I'm paraphrasing totally, but it, we are windows and we are mirrors. And that's, that, is, that was it. That's what I've been looking for, and that's what I want to be. I want to be able to be a window and a mirror. And as a leader, that's my goal. And I think that's what I've been trying to do uh, imperfectly yeah, in my trajectory. That's what I aspire to be, be able to bring uh, more people with me and also to remove myself when I need to, for them to be there, to see themselves, to find themselves. Yeah. And uh, is there any, anything that has as you're working with these other uh, artists and other community leaders and academics that are also in leadership positions or um, or, or trying to uh, make change happen in, in their different environments, is there something that has surprised you, um, either about people's understanding of leadership or how leadership shows up and is enacted in these spaces? Is there anything that you've been like, huh, that's... That's interesting. I didn't know that was a thing. <laughs> many things in many ways. I think, um, you know, it's, it's, it's complicated, right? Because there's so many, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like instructive things, how to be a leader. You have to be this and this and this and this. And then in many of those, uh, you know, prescriptions, I, um, I don't fit, but I am a leader, right? So it's kind of a... Having to prove myself, I mean, you and I were talking about a little bit, talking about uh, the many things that I have done in the past, and I am proud of that because I really appreciate learning and, and expanding myself, but also to what extent do I have to continue prove myself? Like, I, I, I am not my degrees, I am not my accomplishments, I am who I am, and by virtue of that, I am a lot, and we are a lot, right? But that need to, to continue proving ourselves because those spaces are still... Uh, very much by design assigned to people of certain identities, um, right? Uh, some of my, I don't know, I think that uh, we, we, me, in a position of leadership, I am very cognizant that I have to be really good. I have to be, uh, you know, a role model. I have to make the right decisions. I have to be prepared. I have to show up with the knowledge and the preparation. And um, uh, that's not the that's not true for everybody in a leadership position that have gotten there by virtue of their identities uh, is easier for others than it is for us to be in those positions for leadership, which is really sad. Yeah, no, but I, it is sad. And, and I agree with you that there is no coasting. There is no, you've earned your place and then now you have a platform that doesn't exist. Uh, it exists for some people. But it certainly doesn't exist for many women and certainly not for Latina women <laughs> at all. That is this constantly. Um, and no matter how many credentials you have or no matter what you've done or your accomplices have been, I, I hear you uh, that many times, every time you enter a new space, it, you start all over again, right? To begin to build. Yeah, yeah to, to begin to build that place, to earn that place. Yeah, um, absolutely. So. With all of this, where, where do you find joy? Where do you get your energy from and your joy from? I am, um, oh, that's, that's a beautiful question and thank you for asking it. Um, I am happily married to my wife, which is a filmmaker. Uh, we found each other five years ago and um, we have been married for a year and a half. Oh, congratulations. You're, you're still on the honeymoon phase. <laughs> congratulations. <laughs> 
Thank you. Um, my two kids are uh, in college. They are uh, 20 and 19 years old. Um, and they are, one is a journalism, environmental <clears throat> leader and environmental justice leader. My daughter and my son is business and music. They're both at the University of Arkansas. Um, so it's been beautiful to see them grow and to find their spaces. Um, our son came back to live with us uh, in, in the fall of last year. And it's so nice to have him so, so close. My daughter lives in town too. So, you know, I see him often. We have coffee. We talk about life. Uh, that's my joy as well. Um, I have, I find joy in just uh, all of these opportunities to connect, to, um, to, to tell my story. I really enjoy this and I appreciate this opportunity because I, I have learned a lot just by seeing myself in other people's stories and the courage to tell the stories and the courage to talk about the, the highs and the lows and, and to see that that's the, you know, the trajectory of human being and that, um, is, uh, you know. I don't. I, I I didn't dream of this world, but now I'm able to kind of connect the dots and see how life was preparing me to be where I am. Um, of course, I you know I, I still have a lot to experience. Again, I'm prepared for the lows and the and the highs, but I I feel really content <clears throat> to be able to reflect back and to find uh, the things that I have been able to do. And in I play bassoon and I find happiness in choosing what I want to play and the repertoire that I, that I feel is, um, you know, necessary. And when I uplift other, other composers or other, other identities, when I collaborate, playing with people uh, brings a lot of joy. Teaching, uh, although I haven't been teaching since I became associate dean in August <laughs> of last year, but teaching is also a beautiful opportunity for me to just interact with young people. There, there are many ways. I like food a lot. Food is very good, yes, and and uh, whiskey Negronis too. I've learned. From- That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so we're we're going to put a link to uh, Leah's recipe for whiskey Negroni on the website, so you can follow her, her recipe. I'm going to, I'm going to try it. Um, yeah, this is this is really beautiful. Everything that you're saying. So you have lots of sources and places to find this joy, and and you said something about how life has taken you in places that you never expected, and then you never would have designed life this way, right? And and I think about how when we are young, we tend to design our lives, to imagine that we can design our lives and that we imagine that we can make certain choices, which will, of course, lead to uh, obvious outcomes. And maybe we plan for one fork in the road, but certainly not for the thousands of forks in the road that appear all the time, right? So um, I, I guess I, what question I have for you with that in mind is, when you were starting out and wherever you wanted to find the starting out, whether it was that day that you showed up at the conservatory when you were 13 or when you came to the U.S. to study or 2019 when you, you know, made this, this expansion of what you were of your, of your world, uh, what do you wish you had known at that moment and what kind of advice would you give to someone who wants to, who is in that moment, right, in that moment of uh, sort of like a crucible? A key moment to make a change, a decision. What what advice or what would do you wish? What is what do you wish somebody had told you? You were, you were just talking about these forks in life, and when you have to make a decision between X and Y, right? And 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 I never thought it was going to happen so many times, but many times I have found myself in that position. Uh, do I go left? Do I go right? And the most difficult thing that nobody told me is that it's never clear because X and Y look so similar. 
they have so many good things and they have so many difficult things attached to it. And I guess what I want you want people to know is that it doesn't matter what it is, what which one do you choose, you're gonna be okay. Obviously, I mean, we don't have any way to go back and, and experience what would have happened. Borges did with El Jardín de Senderos que se bifurcan. But no, uh, we don't. But but uh, yeah, that that idea that one would have been better than the other, no, it, it, they're so similar and, and, and we are okay. I have been okay and we will be okay. That is so true what you're saying because sometimes the, the options look very much the same. So sometimes you don't even know that you're at a fork in the road. Sometimes it's not even that clear and it's looking back, like you were saying, right? You start to connect the dots. You say, oh, it was at that moment this began to be different. But for me, the, the, the metaphor, I guess, a simile that works better than a fork in the road is sort of like a coral. You know, those corals are like fans, you know, the coral that have all of these different little connections, right? Which you could follow yeah. a path from the bottom of the coral all the way to the edge of the fan. But there are also all these little other different paths that connect to things that's the other thing, right? That it's not just the path that you choose, but I think what we forget sometimes when we're young and or what or not even even when we're not young, but we're in one of those moments, we forget that everything is connected to everything else. So, and that everyone else is making those connections. That ultimately, you, I have found myself years after uh, one of those points that I can look back and see connected to a, pieces of that old world with a piece of the new world that I never thought was there. It's. Absolutely. That's a beautiful, that's a beautiful metaphor. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so, so your advice would be to what? Breathe, hang in there, trust. What would you say? I trust, trust, trust. I mean, I think that when we're making decisions, sometimes I used to get in my head and get be there and be anxious and up and down and not sleeping. Wait, have you found, have you found the recipe to not get in, into your own head? That is more important than the Negroni recipe. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe next time we talk. <laughs> However, I want to say something is that life gets a little bit easier. I'm 52 years old. Uh, I, I find that, uh, you know, when I was in my 40s, in my 30s, um, it was really hard. Oh, my gosh. And um, it's a little bit easier now. Because things are more in perspective, uh, I, I feel different. I feel different. Even the difficult things, because, of course, you know, life is, is still complicated and you start losing more people. Uh, people start getting old, your contemporaries, uh, the older generations. I mean, there's so many things that are going to happen and happen. But, uh, but I feel like right now it's in a, in a more steady place in which what is important is, is more important. So, um, yeah, I still get in my head, but it's different same things happen, but they don't shake you the way that they used to. They don't shake you, the, 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 right? They don't shake the foundations because the foundations are there. So there's something that you can reach in and, say, and, and that takes time to build. Yeah, it does. Leah, well, you know that um, we ask each one of our Hitora's guests to leave a question for someone else. And um, as we're nearing the end of our time, which I think will be the end of our interview, but not of our conversation, I have the feeling we're starting a long conversation um, aside from the interview. But the question I'm that I'm going to ask you comes from Shemi Tapepechul, uh, who is a playwright and um, producer and director and actor here in uh, Washington, D.C. And she left the question... Um, and I think this will resonate with you um, and your work and what you're trying to do, what you've tried to do from the beginning. 
How are you showing up for people who are not in the room? And what are you learning from the ways you show up for people who are not in the room? That's a beautiful question. Um, I think the first learning for me in, in, in to answering the question before I had the question was to realize that there were people not in the room once I entered that room. Um, so that continuous um, reflection where I am in those spaces, uh, what voices are we missing and how am I able to recognize the absence of those voices? Because we all live with our you know, internal bias and we all our own ignorance of what the world, the perfect world should be like. So uh, I've, I've been, that has been my constant question of uh, how can I expand my understanding of the world and how can I uh, account internally for those voices that are not there? And um, in the other, how do I do it? I mean, I, I wish I could do more. I know that I, I have expanded and learned a lot in my process. Um, at the beginning, it was just how can I bring some Latin American music to the repertoire of the bassoon? Uh, after that, how can I bring more women? How can I bring all my identities? Uh, how can I bring my students to find themselves? So in every experience, I what I what I have kept continuously doing, and I hope to continue evolving doing so, is in these spaces that I enter, how can I expand the own, my, that question into my own reality? And to be able to, in the steps that I take into growing and, um, and, and, and trying to transform the, you know, my environment, my community, my, my, my everything around me, uh, that I can expand and answer that question. So I can, I, I can say honestly that I, that's in, in the top of my thinking, but I also can say honestly that I, it's, it's been imperfect, but I will continue doing it to the best of my abilities to bring those voices that are missing through my music, through my teaching, to my leadership, through my um, motherhood, through uh, being a wife, through being a friend in every space, because those spaces are there in every uh, in, in every opportunity. So I, I, I hope to continue doing that. Yeah. Yeah. And it sounds like the learning that you're doing, the way that what you were, the learning that you're doing is figuring out what other ways you can be, what other ways you can recognize who's not in the room and how to bring them in, right? From so, so from the beginning, it's who's not here, but you're still figuring out other ways to bring, bring those voices. Yeah. And you've given a lot of really good advice all throughout this interview, but I'm going to ask you for one more. <laughs> so, so what for someone, so for someone young, for a young woman, for a young Latina woman, uh, who is navigating all these different identities, um, here in the U.S., um, what advice would you give her? And who has that same fire inside that you had, right? Of leadership, of wanting, of not being satisfied with just being in one lane. Who wants to do good things? What would you say? And, and who might not have guidance the same way that you did not? What would you say to her? Oof! I wish. Um, I hope that we are all able that. Uh, to follow our hearts and our passions. I think that um, um, beyond what we receive of prescriptions and expectations of how life needs to be led, um, I, 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 will, I will hope that our younger generations are able to depart from that and to add that their intuition, their heart and their passions for their decisions. Um, which I think that, you know, somebody like me today would be easier, I hope. 
because, um, for example, in the world of music, it was very clear when I was 17 years old that if I wanted to be a professional um, musician, I had to, you know, play in an orchestra and teach in a university. But now to be a musician, you can be many things, right? Mm-hmm. So be open to what the universe is offer, uh, offering. Um, travel, connect with people of all different cultures and uh, demographics, um, connect, connect, connect. Because again, I do believe that the more we are able to see ourselves in others, the richer is our experience. So um, just follow those opportunities. Uh, you never know when you're teacher is your teacher is your the person that sits with you in the metro your teacher is the person like you here in this podcast that is teaching me a lot about life uh your student is your teacher uh you know every opportunity just to learn from everything uh, um Thank you for that. And what question do you want to leave one of your other colleagues uh, here in Ecuadores? Oof, that question. How about <laughs> I want to connect with this idea because I, it really changed my life with being a window and a mirror. And I want to know when was the last time that person was a window and when was the last time that person was a mirror to someone. Oh, that's a beautiful question. It's beautiful. Leah Uribe, it has been such a joy uh, to speak to you and to learn about how you think and how you've uh, moved through life. I'm so grateful to you for Uh, this time and for being so open and so warm uh, in this conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jimena, so much for the opportunity. I really hope that we all get connected and continue working together for all the things that we can do to transform our realities and other people's realities. It's all coral. So, yes. <laughs> coral. All coral. This was Historias. This episode of Gestoras was hosted by me, Jimena Varela, and produced by Anush Titanian. This episode of Gestoras was recorded in Washington, D.C. and Fayetteville, Arkansas. Our theme song is Hace que exista, Make it Exist, by Eli Almik. The graphic design is by Bia Silva. Historias is mixed and supported in part by the Arts Management Program at American University, Washington, D.C. For 50 years, the Arts Management Program at American University has been training leaders in the arts to change the world for the better. Find out more at artsmanagement.american.edu. Follow us on YouTube at Gestoras and on Facebook and Instagram at Gestoras Podcast. Thank you for listening and don't forget to like and subscribe.